Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. This episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast was really a treat for me, and here's why. I got to talk to one of my first bosses as a medical device professional, a great mentor of mine, someone who taught me a great deal about medical device product development, about patients, and how important they are in the equation of a medical device professional. Learned so much from this guy, so enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. You know, folks, a lot of you listening, you're in this, obviously, this medical device industry. You're trying to be innovative, creative. You're trying to develop uh, awesome products to improve quality of life. So as luck would have it or serendipity, however you want to look at it, I suppose, uh, I was in the airport the other day. Uh, I think I was in... Gosh, I don't remember where I was, to be quite honest. But nonetheless, I bumped into uh, an old friend, an old mentor, uh, a former um, boss, I guess, if you will, Bruce Jingles. Bruce is the VP of Global Technology Assessment and Healthcare Policy for Cook Medical. So, Bruce, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thank you, John. It's nice to be with you. You know, and when we bumped into each other in the airport, you shared a little bit about what you're doing. And of course, I want to give you a chance to share with the folks a little bit about that today. But you opened your bag and, and showed me this book that you, you've written or co-authored uh, called Medical Innovation Concept to Commercialization. And, and it, um, you know, the, the few minutes that we talked were reminded me back of those early days. And I want to talk a little bit about that today as well as where things are going. But I guess tell us a little bit about your role and some of the things that, that you dive into, not only for Cook, but also for, frankly, the, the better of the entire medical device industry. Well, let's see. I, uh, I began my career at Cook as a sales representative in California. And then uh, as our business, and I was the first employee of our young uh, critical care division. And as that division began to grow, and uh, we had more products and more people coming on. There was a need to have some support from in the office. So I moved from my territory in California to our office in Bloomington, Indiana. And once I moved, I added the responsibilities of marketing. And today, I think what we sort of call business development, looking for the types of products that our customers would uh, have interest in. I was eventually uh, put in charge of that whole unit uh, for the global sales and marketing and and, uh, product development. And then in the last uh, roughly 10 years, I began to sense some changes in our marketplace, both uh, clinically and politically. And and many of the changes I was uh, observing were really barriers to our business, sort of threats to the way we had always conducted our affairs. And so I um, transitioned over into uh, a role that helps me and and on behalf of Cook, try to identify what these barriers are and ways that we can break them down so that it's easier for us to connect with our customers and put the products on the market that uh, make a difference. 
That's terrific. So, Bruce, I might share some things with you today that, that you might not even realize. But, um, folks, I, um, I started in the medical device industry uh, in the late 90s as a product development engineer. And um, my first boss, I, I mean this as a compliment, that's sometimes that, that term boss gets uh, thrown around as maybe not so much of a compliment, but boss and mentor was Bruce Jingles. Bruce was the uh, head of the critical care business unit. I had the, the extreme pleasure of being a product development engineer. And I learned so much from you, Bruce. And you know, some things that I think you get that, that I think, um, unfortunately, in my experience, uh, 20 years later, they're, they're not very common in the medical device industry. And, and one thing that I think you understand is there has to be a complete uh, cross-functionality, understanding the market need, the clinical need, the patient need, Understanding how to how to communicate that through uh, you know sales development marketing manufacturing it has to be you know a, a very uh, holistic point of view so you know I want to credit you for a lot of things that I learned I uh, certainly in my formative years of my career I, I learned from you so thank you for that well and and thank you for the note and I will say uh, John uh, I don't know if we ever talked about this but when we were working together. You were around in, a, in the very early days of new expectations on engineering for quality processes. And yeah. this was around the time we started hearing terms like CQI, uh, continuous quality improvement. There was a whole vocabulary that was developed around this. And you were one of the people that really before anyone that I remember in the company realized that language like FMEA, failure mode and effects analysis, these design controls, which were brand new to our company and to the industry, you really were a pioneer, certainly for Cook, in helping us get in front of the whole quality engineering and design control process. In fact, you were heading up that portion of Cook's business, which now has grown into a whole, whole huge division. But at the time, it was quite small. And I don't think any of the rest of us uh, quite appreciated the impact that that was going to have on how we designed, developed, and manufactured the products. So um, it was really fun to watch you pick up on that little seed and grow that into what now has become a major part of not only Cook's business, but every company in the device industry. So thank you for that. Oh, I appreciate you saying so. It's certainly my pleasure. I've learned a ton and I'm very fortunate for the opportunities that I've had. So I uh, appreciate you saying so. But you know, when I saw you in the airport, I, I kind of went back to, you know, I, I think being a product development engineer is is fascinating. Uh, it, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I think it's a little bit different today. And, and you and I are going to chat a little bit about why that might be, not only from the product development engineer perspective, but maybe from the inventor, specifically the physician inventor perspective. But one of the things that, that we did a lot uh, back in those days in critical care is we worked very closely with physicians. Not only do we work closely with physicians, but but the, uh, the doctors that we worked with, the anesthesiologists, the ER docs, the surgeons, and so on, they were inventors of products and technologies. And, and I tell people all the time that, you know, you'd be at the American Society of Anesthesiologists or 
uh, college of surgeons or whatever, and, and you'd have a meeting with a doctor, and sometimes they would literally bring you a cocktail napkin sketch for something that they had, you know, gotten their pen or their Sharpie out and drawn something, or in other cases, they might have grabbed some different parts and pieces, you know, from their lab and glued things together, you know, and a, and a crude prototype. But, but that was fascinating to be able to, to work with that physician inventor to understand what problem they're trying to solve and then be able to go, you know, do that and design and, and test and, and, and basically get that product ready for manufacturing. It feels like the things have changed a little bit, though, uh, certainly in, in recent years. It seems like that that doesn't happen as much these days. Uh, would you agree with that? Yes, I would completely agree with that. No, no doubt about it. And I think it's unfortunate, right? Because who better to solve clinical problems, healthcare problems, than the doctors and nurses who are out there doing that? So what has changed in recent years that, that maybe is a kind of a roadblock for this to continue to happen? Yeah, I think you've identified a very important shift in, uh, in technology, healthcare technology, because virtually all of the important medical devices that uh, we count on today were originally conceived and first validated by the clinician taking care of the patient. They were, as you say, at the front line, at the bedside. It was, it was their problem in responsibility to their patient that they were trying to solve. And some of the solutions to their own problems was subconscious. They often didn't know exactly what it was about a certain procedure or care event that was driving them crazy, but a light would often go on in their mind to say, you know, we struggle with this. I think I have a way I could solve the problem. And once they had a design in mind, they could come to a company like Cook or any other and say, I, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I have the same problems that my colleagues have, and this is what we face. And if they were the sorts of uh, solutions to the problem that we had the resources to address that if we had engineering skills in that area, if we had the right materials, you know, if it was part of our strategic uh, focus, then we could, as you say, begin with prototypes and do some early bench testing, do some validation work, and we could find out pretty early and without a whole lot of money whether this was barking up the right tree, whether this uh, proposed solution could really make a difference. And yet today, as you say, that's really changed. Our system today often doesn't trust the doctors to do the right thing for patients. There's a whole movement they call conflict of interest. And because doctors might receive royalties on the sales of products for which they've earned a patent, uh, those royalties uh, are now held against the physicians in many cases. Um, there's so much production pressure placed on the physicians by their hospitals that any time away from clinical care uh, is viewed by many hospitals as coming at the expense of their own bottom line. So they want those doctors in front of the patients as much as possible and billing for their time. So if they take time out to develop an important new technology, the hospital may see that as a, a conflict of commitment or a conflict of time. Those are a couple of the things that have really shifted the enthusiasm by doctors of solving their own problems and the uh, the types of barriers that they face. Because in the old days, if they came up with an important product, the Foley catheter, the Swan-Gans catheter, the Fogarty embolectomy catheter, these sorts of things that even had their names on it, were not like 
Lipitor and Plavix that have made up names. The names of our products are often that inventor's name. They could sort of be local heroes. They would be yeah. in the newspaper and they would be known around the hospital. Whereas today, people um, often treat them sort of badly for being part of the process. Yeah. Um- you know, I, I worked on a lot of those devices where, you know, the the doctor who was the inventor, they got credit, like, you know, pretty much in perpetuity, uh, at least with the name of the product. Um, it reminded me, you sharing that little bit reminded me of a story. When I first started at Cook, I, I loved your approach to getting engineers um, sort of out of the engineering and into the field. And one of the things that I did early on was attend a, an anesthesia course down at uh, Shands Hospital at University of Florida. And I remember I was trying to figure out where this cadaver lab workshop was, and, and uh, I found it. It was in the, the catacombs of the hospital. But I got down to this cadaver lab, and uh, you know, I was a few minutes late, but the, the doctor was, was already talking to med students, and they were going through emergency uh, cricothyrotomy devices, you know, emergency airway devices. And uh, there were three or four different products, and they all had physician names tied to them because the, you know, the physician contributed to that innovation. And, and one of the students asked the, the doctor, wh- whom I didn't know who it was at the time, uh, asked uh, the doctor what his favorite or preferred uh, crike device was. And, and he said, uh, well, it's the Melker cricothyrotomy device, you know, which, of course, is a, a well-known cook product. Um, and... Uh, Later, uh, you know, after uh, the cadaver lab, one of the med students was kind enough to show me to the next spot. And I said, excuse me, who was that doctor? And she's like, oh, that was Dr. Richard Melker. Uh, so um, uh, that was just one of those moments. But um, where, you know, you kind of appreciate that this guy, not only does he, he's not doing this uh, for financial gain. He's doing this to save and improve quality of life, you know, and and I've had a chance to interact with with uh, Rich quite a few times over the years since. Um, and it's, it's a little discouraging, I think, as a, a med device professional uh, to hear that physicians might be a little disenfranchised today. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. It's coming at them with uh, new policies, uh, two of them that I find especially troubling. One is that uh, when we get FDA clearance on a product which is required before that product can be used in a human, so we always have the FDA's green light before these go into patients. But once we've gotten that clearance or approval from FDA, then we could, at least in theory, launch anywhere around the world that we had um, regulatory uh, approval for. Well, but when we come up with a new product after working for uh, several years now with an inventor, we don't want other people to try it until that inventor has signed off to cook that it's exactly what they want us to make for them. And we have always sent those early products to the inventor for evaluation. And as you'll remember, they would often call you and, and make subtle changes just even after you think it had been built exactly to their specification. But there were often little things. It could be the length or it could be the tension on a trigger, these sorts of things that they'd like to have refined before it goes to bigger groups. Today, when we go to send those to the inventor, their chair will often step in and say, we don't want you to be the evaluator because you're involved with that company. You have a conflict. They want that evaluation to be done by a disinterested third party someone who's medically qualified but doesn't have that mental image of the ideal solution. 
And without that passion to make that uh, product the best it can be, most of those ideas die once it leaves the inventor's hands and goes into this uh, into the uh, hands of a disinterested person. So separating the inventor from the the evaluation of the early product is uh, often a death stroke to the technology. It really impedes the manufacturer's ability to be true to that person's vision. The second is that in the old days when physician autonomy was so high, the uh, they could request products in their hospital, and the hospital was usually very accommodating. Today, if we get these products on the market after years of work with them, when they make the request to bring it to their practice so they can do what you're talking about, help their patient, which is really their motivation, they're told to go to the value analysis committee and present their case. And a large percentage of those requests today are rejected. They're, they know in advance that hospital may not buy the product they've worked so long to develop. And part of that reason may be because uh, the hospital doesn't want their faculties to have a conflict. So for many physicians, if they can't ultimately practice their art on their patients, there's very little incentive to spend the time developing it. Wow. I mean, it's, it's, um, I, I remember um, after, I guess it was probably four, three or four years, maybe, you know, or so into my career, um, we started to see a shift at that time. Uh, so this would have been early 2000 uh, timeframe um, where, you know, uh, there was a lot more layers that were starting to be infused in between the medical device companies designing and developing products and the physician inventors. You know, the, I, I mean this, um, I don't mean this as, as a, a negative per se, but I, I think it has had a negative impact on the industry. But there was a, a lot more, um, I'll say, bean counters, so to speak, and, and people with that were more about the, the finances, you know, the cost of the technology that were you know, looking to bundle different products and trying to get discounts on all these sorts of things. And, and that seemed to be, at least from my perspective on this topic, sort of the beginning of where what we're seeing today where you know now they're the people making the buying decisions uh, for hospitals and and uh, healthcare facilities are pretty far removed from the practice of medicine well that's right yeah there's a whole new jargon today about this at the federal level and also by the states as well as the payer community uh, decisions used to be based on clinical outcomes and the science and clinical trials that uh, demonstrated which procedures and which methods were best for patients. That's still very important, but really a major uh, consideration today is known by names like value-based purchasing or value-based care, where the algorithms used to decide what technologies will be available and how patients' pathway through the health system will go really depends on resource conservation and minimizing the expenditures. So people at the front line of care, the doctors themselves are now being instructed, we not only want you to do give us good outcomes with our patients, but we need you to help us control cost. And uh, this does affect the types of technologies that get developed and, and used in the hospitals. I mean, it seems like a misnomer. I mean, value-based healthcare um, shouldn't that have. It seems like the patient should be um, a more part of that equation. But but sadly, that's not really the case. 
Yeah, I think some of this comes down to the idea of equity. That is, if you have a fixed budget, if your hospital is only going to have a certain amount of money to spend each year, and in order to do the best job for the most patients, there's this idea that that budget is a zero-sum game, that if you pay money to help this patient, that's money you can't it can't be used to help another patient. Um, I I think that's a little dubious because the economy of the health system and the outputs of the health system have simply grown over the decades. It's actually just much bigger today. So our life expectancy is considerably longer than just 70 years ago, up about 50 or 55% in just 70 years. A lot of that has to do with technologies. Uh, and as life expectancy has gotten longer, that's more lifetime to earn income, to build your business and to contribute to the economy. So our nations, the G8 nations, they are much wealthier. And our standard of living has gone up enormously, largely in direct relation to the longer life expectancy. So as this whole pie of age and productivity and, and, um, uh, and our economy has gotten larger, we then really do have more that we can spend and invest on continuing that trend. But at the moment, we, I think, tend to look at that pie as being quite fixed and, uh, and as, again, sort of a zero-sum proposition. Folks, I want to remind you, I'm talking to Bruce Jingles. Bruce is the Vice President of Global Technology Assessment and Healthcare Policy for Cook Medical. I uh, also want to take a moment to uh, remind you that Greenlight Guru recently launched a brand new podcast. That's right, MedTech True Quality Stories. You want to check that out. Wherever you're listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast, you'll be able to find MedTech True Quality Stories as well. I like, uh, this is the best part of my job, frankly, is to, to get to talk to people like Bruce and others that are guests on both podcasts. Uh, because, you know, it's it's really about trying to change this industry and move it in the right direction. And and I, I love um, hearing what Bruce is doing and some of the things that he's, you know, monitoring and evaluating because his role is to try to make sure that that healthcare is moving in a direction that, that maybe is, uh, seems obvious, but it's really about getting it back to the patient, you know? And, and I think that's really, really important. So be sure to go check out MedTech True Quality Stories as well. Uh, during uh, episodes on the MedTech True Quality Stories, we have um, some inventors and entrepreneurs and, and folks that are kind of in the trenches at different medical device companies throughout the world. And they share some of their successes and some of their challenges, uh, but uh, definitely worth a listen. So, um, Bruce, uh, you know, we've talked ab ab about some of the, the current uh, landscape and situation, if you will. Um, seems a little dire. Um, you know, your finger's on the pulse of what's going on. It, are, are things going to get better? Or are they going to get worse on this topic? Well, I think that's the really $50,000 question, uh, and I, I'm sort of disappointed to say I don't, I don't really know at this point, but there is certainly uh, tension in both directions pulling on this rope, uh, and, and from more than two directions, actually. So I, I like to remain optimistic. I think that uh, particularly as the baby boomers like myself get older and we start suffering our own... Uh, uh, failures, physical failures. I think uh, we're inclined to put political pressure on a system, whether it's the government and its agencies, whether it's um, the industry and the uh, lobbyists for industry, 
to make sure that the best care, including new therapies that no one has even thought of yet today, could potentially become available in our own lifetime or those of the next generation and the one behind them. The uh, One of the trends that I think is very interesting at the moment is we see a huge reduction in the number of new ideas that relate to therapy, ways to actually improve the, the uh, outcome for patients. We see a much bigger uh, number of ideas coming in on diagnosis, uh, monitors, wearables, uh, digital uh, technologies. We can measure and monitor so many things today, but we are not keeping up with the number of solutions to those problems. What what procedure or what intervention will follow that newly accurate diagnosis that actually then cures a disease or mitigates an illness? And I hope that at some point we can get these two back in balance so that uh, the therapy can keep up with the diagnosis. All right. So let me try to connect a few dots based on what we've chatted about so far. So the the trend that you're seeing is is a, a much higher emphasis, if you will, on diagnostic uh, devices and, and technologies, uh, a decrease in therapeutic technologies, which if we go back to what we were talking about a few moments ago, uh, this is directly, I think, tied to physicians being disenfranchised in some respects. The focus is more on wearing something and it telling me some some vital sign or some information about my health. But but um, there's there's disincentives that are in place. I, I certainly, from the healthcare policy standpoint, from therapeutics, uh, would you? It seems like there's been a little bit of disincentives as well from a regulatory policy standpoint. And it's kind yeah, of a, that's right. it's, it's kind of just a bad situation. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, today the um, the cost and the regulatory barriers for diagnostics tend to be much much lower. It's faster, easier, and cheaper to develop software and where and uh, digital technology than to develop class three or even some class two interventional or invasive products. And so I think that because uh, the finances for entrepreneurs and even established companies today are uh, quite tight and the hospital budgets are under enormous pressure and there's not a big appetite today in the big health systems to invest a lot of money, even for very promising technologies. The shortest distance between two points often looks like a a quick and easy uh, wearable. And those are very helpful. I think knowing more about disease is great. But again, the um, because of the timelines, the long timelines and the higher cost, uh, the high failure rate through the development process for the interventional products is uh, just simply not keeping pace. And and I hope uh, collectively as a, as a society, we can address that. Yeah, I hope so too. And I, I know a lot of the folks that listen to the Global Medical Device Podcast that they may be in startups or, you know, inventors or, you know, developing some sort of technology. And I I know because I've been there and, and I speak with a lot of folks who are in this situation, it is really, really, really difficult to raise funding uh, for something that, that is perceived to have a longer, more challenging uh, path to market as well. So, you know, it's it's a whole ecosystem that, that probably needs to be uh, revised and, and or revisited anyway to see if there might be some opportunities to improve the whole situation. You know, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, Bruce. So, you know, is there any 
you know, we, sometimes we look for, you know, a, a single root cause or more importantly, maybe a single solution. Uh, and I don't think this is a situation where there is a single solution, but is there one item or one area where you see as, as maybe the, the bottleneck or the gating item that if we would, you know, open that up and, and be more progressive on our, our thinking and our policies on this one particular area that it would make a huge difference? Well, uh, what I could suggest is if we can break these bigger problems down into smaller problems that are easier to tackle and do those one at a time, I think we have a good chance of uh, achieving progress. One of the things on the example we were talking about a few minutes ago about the difficulty that inventors have in evaluating their own products, uh, I think a simple solution to this and one I hope our system will, will carefully consider and one that's already being used in a few forward-looking academic centers would be to insist that that inventor be the operator during those evaluations uh, on those prototype products. But in addition to the inventor, there would be a chaperone assigned uh, by the service chief or the chair who doesn't report to the inventor. They're not subordinated to the inventor. They report directly to an, an independent person and that second person, that chaperone, would be present for two purposes. They would make sure that the patients that get that new technology are appropriate for the technology, that they're not being railroaded into a, a trial that uh, only because the inventor is enthusiastic. And the second reason that they would be there would be to make sure that the records of those cases that are performed are truly accurate, that an inventor can't think to themselves how great this was when, in fact, there could have been some problems that occurred. And this person would have an objective second set of eyes that would make sure that whatever reports are generated both to the medical record and eventually maybe to publications in the, in the clinical literature were entirely accurate. And by having a supervisor uh, who does not interfere with the performance of the procedure but makes sure that certain safeguards are implemented, uh, now you've avoided all the potential for conflicts of interest You've protected the patient by having a, um, a second party there that's uh, there to serve their interests. And yet you're also permitting that inventor to do the work that they're most qualified to do. That is the inventing itself and feedback directly to the engineer on the proper um, device improvements. I think that system could make an enormous difference uh, for the way we develop medical devices. I mean, it seems pretty simple at, at its core. Uh, I, I know that, um, you know, there's some nuances, of course, to figuring that out. And it's encouraging to hear that there are some facilities that are starting to embrace this. So that's really encouraging. And what can we do? What can I do? What can Greenlight do to help uh, spread the word or, or uh, influence change in a good way on this topic? What can the audience well, do I for think that matter? You're already taking a great step. I think one of the things you might consider would be to have a panel on one of your programs and on that panel, you could invite people that have pro and con views about this and people who are in policymaking positions. And I think if they were able to uh, debate these issues on Greenlight Guru and, and, um, and make these topics public, it might uh, synthesize our thinking about these a little better and where we could then eventually come up with more rational policy about how to address this. And I think your program does an awful lot of good to uh, bring these ideas forward and then let thoughtful people play around with the policy side. 
I appreciate you saying so, and, and that's a really great idea. I, I might lean on you for some help putting something like that together in the future, but uh, really great idea. Bruce, before we wrap up uh, this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, any parting thoughts or words of wisdom or or uh, tidbits and nuggets of information that you think are important for our listeners to, to leave with? Well, I can't think of anything else at the moment, John. I want to thank you for uh, uh, spending time today, and I really enjoyed talking to you. I certainly look forward to our next airport meeting. <laughs> and, uh, thanks, uh, thanks very much for uh, speaking with me today. Oh, absolutely, folks. Uh, this has been um, so uh, exciting for me to to get to to talk with Bruce. Bruce is a guy I've looked up to for so many years. He he really helped shaped uh, how I function as a medical device professional. Um, just really grateful to his his guidance and mentorship early on in my career. Um, Bruce is again with uh, with Cook Medical. He's the v- vice president of global technology assessment and healthcare policy. He's also an author. Uh, he has a book out there. Uh, my copy is on its way to my doorstep now. It's called Medical Innovation Concept to Commercialization. I haven't read it yet, but I am sure that it is fascinating. I'm sure that it shares you know what's important about. Uh, new technology and, and working with physicians and, and getting uh, these these devices that are going to save and improve the quality of life into the hands that, of those who could do something about it. So, Bruce, thank you so much for, for being my guest. Folks, certainly there are challenges that we face on a number of fronts as medical device professionals, whether it be figuring out how to navigate the treacherous healthcare policies that are in place in some cases, or whether that be regulatory pathways, uh, whether that be uh, you know, making sure that you have true quality systems in place. You know, certainly Greenlight Guru is here to help. We have an EQMS software platform that is designed specifically for and exclusively uh, by medical device professionals. It's the only one on the market that, that can make that claim. So I would encourage you to go check out what we're doing at www.greenlight.guru to learn more. If you'd like to see a demo and learn more about the software platform and how it can streamline your product development efforts and improve your quality efficiency, certainly something that you should check out. Folks, thank you so much for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. And yes, be sure to go check out the new podcast, MedTech True Quality Stories, as well. As always, this is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear.